This morning, our speaker is Reverend Dr. Cynthia Stewart. We welcome her to UFM. This is her first visit to us. Reverend Dr. Stewart came to Nashville to go to graduate school at Vanderbilt University and somehow ended up staying much longer than she expected. She's put the extra time to good use though, getting a PhD in religion, becoming a UU, and then entering UU ministry. Teaching for a United Church of Christ seminary, working as a hospital chaplain, and serving as a volunteer chaplain for three years at Riverbend, the men's maximum security prison in Nashville. These days she works at a prison ministry helping those who are leaving incarceration. The title of her sermon today is All is Well. Welcome, Dr. Stewart. So, judging from what you just heard, you can probably figure out that I've never been one to settle happily into doing just one thing. Yeah. So I end up wearing a lot of different hats. One of those hats is as Dr. Stewart, which I get to wear mostly these days when I'm teaching at that UCC seminary. Um, and the students there come from a lot of different backgrounds, not just UCC. Lots of different religious traditions, sometimes no traditions. I've had plenty of atheist students. Uh, but they pretty much all want to make the world a better place through some sort of ministry. Sometimes I even get a UU student. That always makes me happy. This semester, three of them. Yay! <laughs> so one semester, I get this UU student in my History of Christian Thought class. She tells me, that she's an atheist who dislikes mysticism and ritual. I tell her how happy I am to have her in my class and that she's straight up wrestling with her Unitarian and Universalist heritage and we go off into the semester. So about a month in, we get a reading from a fourth century mystic called Pseudo Dionysius. Now he is often given the title of the father of Western mysticism. Pseudo-Dionysius refers to God as the divine darkness. He says that mystical experience refers to that which takes us above the senses and the operations of the intellect. And all things sensible and intellectual and all the worlds of being and non-being, okay? so that we arise by unknowing toward the union with it that transcends all being and all knowledge. In other words, what he calls God isn't any of those words that we normally hear used to describe God, right? It's not an image of an old white man with a beard. It's not justice or mercy, or love, or any other kind of limiting concept. It's something closer to beingness. It's like the Hindu concept of Brahman, somewhat. And union, it's not about being good, or righteous, or following any kind of rules. It's about being swept up beyond the limits of thought and feeling into that beingness. So my UU student, 
Well, it bothers the heck out of her, but she's pretty intrigued, okay? And it keeps creeping into all of her discussions, right? It's like it's captured her attention, but she really doesn't like that it's captured her attention. So we go along in the weeks of this Christian history course and we read other mystics of the Christian tradition. 12th century abbess Hildegard, who had visions of what she called the living light. She described what she called the verdant greening power of the Holy Spirit. She called it the life of the life of everything, including humans. And she wrote this powerful theology using feminine imagery for God and for the church and for humanity. All of these things that most other theologians of the time were describing solely with masculine imagery, right? And then into the 13th century with Hadowich, who had these deeply symbolic visions of union with the divine and who wrote this amazing gender non-conforming poetry where she projected herself as this knight following and swooning for his lady love God. Then we're in the 14th century with Meister Eckhart who claimed total lack of separation between God and the soul, saying the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. And Mother Julian of Norwich, who had visions of talking to God and being shown that sin is unreal except in the pain that it causes to ourselves and others. Not something that separates us from God, not something for which we get punished. How could we get judged, she said, when God is in our soul and our soul is in God at all times? As she so beautifully tells us, all is well and all is well and all manner of things shall be well. So by this point, my UU student is hating to admit it, but she's completely hooked. <laughs> These boundary-breaking visions, crashing through lines used to divide male and female, sacred and profane, God and human, this fits so deeply with her own understanding of gender as fluid, of humanity as part of rather than separate from the natural world, of the world and cosmos as full of meaning due to being rather than due to human thought process, right? This all makes sense to her. And even more, more than that, she's recognizing something from her own experiences. This profound sense of unity with all that is. She's had these experiences but she'd never given them a name before. She certainly wouldn't have called them mystical experiences. But little by little, she came to accept that that's exactly what they were. 
By the end of the semester, she had taken to calling herself an atheist mystic, which delights me to no end. So that's what I'm here to talk about today, that mysticism isn't just for mystics, or at least not for what we usually think of when we say that word. It's not just for some super holy people with a far off look in their eye who are totally detached from the world, right? You know, definitely not normal people, not people who value reason, definitely not people who may not have a creator God anywhere in their conception. Definitely not you use. What I'm saying to you is that mysticism is for everybody, including you use. Mysticism is just a name for those experiences that take us beyond ourselves, that take us deeper and wider than these limited beings that we call I. Mystical experiences can take so many forms. We might see a vision or hear a voice of the divine, Maybe we experience an overpowering sense of connection to nature, to the earth itself, until we recognize our inherent unity with all that is. Perhaps we find ourselves overwhelmed with our connection to other humans, and all our distinctions fall away, all the us's and them's, until all we experience is we, just oneness, all is one. Simple, beautiful unity that seems so clear and right in the moment and that can seem so far away at other times. It's this oneness, this sense of unity that is the hallmark of so many mystical experiences whether it's with God or with trees or with the universe as a whole, we get a sense of the limits of I being an illusion, that there's no separation between I and other. And along with this deep sense of recognition, of unity is this recognition that you, little old you, are not in control of this experience. You're not making it happen. But it's okay. It doesn't feel chaotic or out of control. It feels absolutely right. Like you're seeing into a deeper reality than you ever have before. Like some sort of dullness has been stripped from your eyes and you can suddenly see what has clearly been there the whole time. Know what has always been there to know. Right? But here's the thing. I don't really have to tell you this, do I? According to the Pew Research Center, about half of you have had these experiences that I'm talking about. A 2009 poll says that about 49% of American adults have had experiences that they would describe as mystical or religious. While the percentage is higher among those who define themselves as affiliated with religion, about 30% of people who are, do not define themselves 
as affiliated with religion report these experiences. So it's across the spectrum. And one of the really interesting things, these numbers are twice as high as they were 50 years ago when people were going to church more. Interesting, huh? So let's think about this for a minute. Half of our society has had some kind of an experience of unity that crosses all barriers. Half has had the startling experience of being thrown, maybe briefly, but for long enough to make a lasting impression, into a oneness that shows that unity is more real than separation. Unity among humans, unity between humans and the natural world, the unity of humans and the divine, unity among all of it. And the people who report these overwhelming experiences aren't necessarily rural or urban, conservative or liberal, of any one race or creed or gender or identity, whatever. It's just a whole mess of people, right? Some of whom you might agree with, some of whom you might disagree with, but they share this experience, at least momentarily, of knowing a truth that goes beyond the everyday. And yes, by and large, they do recognize this as a truth, as revelatory, something that makes them see differently and think differently, and that they carry with them into the rest of their lives. Now, that doesn't make the everyday go away. We all have our worries and our joys about work, family, money, children, new beginnings, growing old. We humans always have. These days, though, it seems like we have a whole big heap of anxieties that people of past generations didn't have to worry about. Worries about excessive polarization in society about changes in our climate, about technology that might outstrip our ethical ability to deal with it, about illnesses that spread fast and kill often. Our worries, they don't just reach around our family or even just around our city. They extend around the globe. Don't you feel that flutter of anxiety just as I'm even talking about these things? But what if, what if that deeper unity I'm talking about is real? The unity of humans and the divine and nature and the cosmos. What if this is the ultimate reality? It doesn't make polarization or ethical problems or climate change go away but maybe it gives us a new basis from which to contemplate them. All right, morning. This is the participatory part of the sermon. I'm going to invite you into a series of imaginative practices. Let's take a few breaths and begin to pay attention to our bodies. And then begin 
to really move into the idea that Mother Julian shares with us, that all is well, that all is truly well, that nothing can stop things from being well. Because being well is simply inherent in being itself. Breathe in, all is well. There is hatred and fear, but at a deeper level, we are one and all is well. Breathe in, all is well. There is pain and suffering, but at a deeper level, we are one and all is well. Breathe in, all is well. So much is beyond our control, but at a deeper level, we are one and all is well. Breathe in, all is well. All is well. All is well. All is well. Thank you, Mother Julian. For the next step, in our imaginative practice. We turn to our 12th century mystic abbess, Hildegard, who tells us that the world is living being. The word is living being spirit, all verdant greening, all creativity. This word manifests in every creature and in all that is. She's telling us that the lush aliveness that causes trees to blossom and grass to grow is the same lush aliveness that brings joy and power and renewal to our bodies and our spirits and our souls. That we are not separated from the natural world. So let us return to our breathing again This time, I'm going to ask you to join me in a call and response. I will say the beginning of a phrase, and I will ask you to respond with, are filled with the verdant greening of life. Let me ask you to repeat that. Are filled with the verdant greening of life. All right. I will begin with one phrase and then ask you to join me on the second. I'll lift my hand when it's time. 
I am filled with the verdant greening of life. The trees and the grass are filled with the verdant greening of life. My neighbors beside me are filled with the verdant greening of life. The wide meadows and the city streets are filled with the verdant greening of life. The people I love are filled with the verdant greening of life. Mountains and hills in far-off lands are filled with the verdant greening of life. The people I fear are filled with the verdant greening of life. Deserts and oceans and tiny villages and thriving metropolises are filled with the verdant greening of life. All people, all nature are filled with the verdant greening of life. Thank you, Hildegard. For the final part of our imaginative practice, let us turn to biologist and religious naturalist Ursula Goodenough, who writes about planetary ethics. She's one of many non-theist mystics. My UU student would love this. Those who experience that deep sense of oneness without any conception of a creator God. When good enough speaks of accessing experiences of unity, as she says, she writes that she has experienced a belonging to the universe, an overflow of astonishment and wonder and peace and tranquility. So once again, let us return to our breathing. And I invite you to join me in a series of hand motions that make a body prayer. Very simple. We will do this twice. You can follow along as I do this. So. The sacredness of all humans fills me with astonishment. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot one part. I'm in, I am going to do this as call and response. I will say the first line. You please repeat after me. The sacredness of all humans fills me with astonishment. The sacredness of all humans fills me with astonishment. The sacredness of all creatures fills me with wonder. The sacredness of all creatures fills me with wonder. The sacredness of all the earth fills me with peace. The sacredness of all the earth fills me with peace. The sacredness of all the cosmos fills me with tranquility. The sacredness of all the cosmos fills me with tranquility. I belong to the universe. I belong to the universe. One more time. 
The sacredness of all humans fills me with astonishment. The sacredness of all humans fills me with astonishment. The sacredness of all creatures fills me with wonder. The sacredness of all creatures fills me with wonder. The sacredness of all the earth fills me with peace. The sacredness of all the earth fills me with the sacredness of all the cosmos fills me with tranquility. The sacredness of all the cosmos fills me with tranquility. I belong to the universe. I belong to the universe. Thank you, Ursula Goodenough. There, with mystics both theistic and non-theistic, we have listened and we have breathed. We have moved from fear and anxiety to peace and tranquility. We have proceeded through knowledge of a deeper reality where all is well, to awareness of a verdant greeting that joins all of us and the natural world, to a sense of belonging to the whole universe. But there's one more mystic whose words we still need to consider. Hadowich, that 13th century woman who wrote herself as the knight of love adoring the Lady God, had these amazing experiences of profound and very embodied union with the divine. But she also wrote that if you just want to have visions or experience union, or if you have them and then just sit around and enjoy them, then you're spiritually immature. The point of the vision, she said, is to prepare yourself to go out and be Christ in the world, to help the hurting, care for the ill, bring hope to those who despair, or as we might say nowadays, to seek justice, work for peace, and to love boundlessly with our hands and feet. So it's not just to get a peak experience, to get this power boost or natural high that we can ride for days, but to take these moments of deeper knowledge as fuel to go out and be compassion and empathy in the world. And let me tell you, the world needs it. Amen and namaste.